The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of Your Included, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright speaks about his book, How God Became King. Our host, is Dr. Gary Detto. Professor Wright, thank you so much for taking some time out here at St. Andrews uh, this morning and joining us for the Your Included interview series of Grace Communion International. Good to be with you. I'd like to spend uh, some time, if you don't mind, uh, considering uh, themes that you address in your most recent publication, How God Became King, uh, The Forgotten Stories of the Gospel. Hmm. Uh, at the outset of your book, you tell the reader that you think there is a serious problem at the very heart of the Christian faith and practice as you've experienced it. You say your increasing impression is that most of Western Christian tradition has simply forgotten what the four Gospels are really all about. Well, that's quite provocative. Could you elaborate on that statement and uh, tell us what, in essence, we have forgotten? Yes, I've often wondered since writing that whether I was overstating it, but actually looking around and listening and attending church and talking with friends, I still want to stick to it because at the heart of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John is this enormous claim that something actually happened right there at the beginning of the first century through the work and death and resurrection of Jesus. Something happened which has transformed the world and we have tended to slide that downhill into being Jesus simply providing a system of salvation which enables us later um, to leave the world or uh, to escape the world in some way, either by uh, our spirituality in the present or by a salvation which will take us away from the world entirely in the future. Whereas the four Gospels living as they did within the world of Second Temple Judaism believed that through Jesus, the one God of Israel, who is the creator of the world, had acted to reclaim the world, to redeem the world, to rescue the world, not to enable people to leave it behind. And this idea is scary for most modern people in the Western world, because for the last 200 years, Western thought in general, and Christianity along with that, has tended to think in terms of splitting apart things that are, quote, worldly, whether we call them political or social or whatever, mm -hmm and then religious or spiritual things over there. And so we have read the Gospels through a grid of interpretation which is systematically and at every point denying that one of the main things that the Gospels are trying to affirm. So uh, I don't know how to say that uh, except by doing it rather sharply, that I think we've all been getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. Could you uh, maybe recall for us some particular passages in the New Testament that uh, point out uh, the, the emphasis or the importance of Jesus and the kingdom and his as kingship? Yes, I suppose um, a passage which many, many Western Christians know very well because they may hear it read in church at Christmas time and so on is the beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What John is doing in that passage, hooking up with what he does in his story of Jesus' resurrection, is to tell the story of Jesus as the story of a new genesis, a new beginning. And genesis is all about the creation and about God's beautiful, lovely world. 
And the story John tells in his gospel from beginning to end is a story not about Jesus telling people to leave the world behind and go somewhere else, but a story about how in and through Jesus, the one God of creation is rescuing creation and enabling his people to live as new creation people. That's a way of telling the story which I never heard when I was growing up in church and, and when I was being taught as a student and so on, and we need to recapture it. But um, this comes to a climax in John's Gospel, and that extraordinary scene in chapters 18 and 19, when Jesus confronts Pontius Pilate. And here we have the kingdom of God squaring off against the kingdom of Caesar. But it isn't uh, Jesus saying, well, all this kingdom stuff is a waste of time. It's Jesus and Pilate arguing about different visions of kingdom and truth and power. We see that as well in, say, the beginning of Luke's Gospel, where Luke, uh, in chapter 2, spends some time setting up um, the, the, the chronology in terms of the Roman emperor of the time, Augustus Caesar, who was emperor when Jesus was born. And Luke describes that in considerable detail, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem because Augustus Caesar wanted to have a census so he could get more tax and do all that stuff, which was standard practice at the time. Anyone living at the time would know that this story, any Jew living at the time would know this story of somebody being born in the royal house of David in Bethlehem at precisely the moment when the Roman Empire is flexing its muscles is bound to lead on to a sense of, well, which kingdom are we going to go with then? And the story ends for Luke, not at the end of Luke's gospel, but at the end of Acts, with Paul announcing God as king and Jesus as Lord in Rome openly and unhindered. And Luke kind of says to us, okay, you do the math, you figure out what's going on here. One third quick example, in Mark chapter 10, when James and John say they want to sit one at Jesus' right and one at his left, um, Jesus explains not only do they not have a clue what they're talking about, but that there are two different ways of doing power. The rulers of the nations, he says, boss people about and bully them and harry them and so on. He says, we're not going to do it like that. We're going to do it the other way, by the power of servanthood. Mm. Because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, the gospel isn't about an otherworldly dream. It's about a different way of doing stuff in and for this world, because it's God's world and God loves it and has come to rescue it. And just tailpiece. One of the most famous verses in Scripture, John 3.16, it doesn't say God so hated the world that he sent his Son. God so loved the world. Mm. And that's the whole purpose is God's reclaiming of his rights as creator over the whole world. Mm -hmm. As you were talking, I was also wondering about, what about the Jesus' parables of the kingdom? Do some of those point in the same direction? The parables of the kingdom are fascinating because at one level, of course, they are illustrations, just like you or I might toss into a sermon or a talk um, an illustration that happens to occur to us while we're on the way to church or whatever. But they're much more than that. Those parables of seed and growth um, play back in the minds of Jesus' hearers. And we have to remember that most of them, the main texts they had in their minds were the Old Testament scriptures. They play back particularly through the prophetic images about God sowing his people, about God sowing Israel, making it a fruitful place, etc. But they play all the way back to Genesis 1 again, where you get 
the rather lavish account of God creating plants with seed in them bearing fruit and so on. Mm -hmm. So the idea of plants coming up and bearing fruit is a new creation idea, it's a new Israel idea. If you track it through Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's a return from exile idea. And these all kind of nest together and fit together. So that though what Jesus is saying is a direct challenge to these people who are listening to him now, that challenge resonates out with a sense that this kingdom vision is about God doing the new thing, which is going with the grain of the original creation, but now making it much more fruitful. You see this in the miracle stories when Jesus multiplies loaves and fishes. It isn't that he says, forget eating loaves and fishes entirely, I've got something totally different. Um, these are signs that the God of creation is doing new things. He's on the move in a new way. Right. As I understand uh, your argument and insights, I think what you're trying to bring out uh, as well here is that we can't really fully appreciate the New Testament, what it means, until we read about uh, its connections to the Old Testament. And I think you've wanted to bring that out. Uh, could you say a little bit more about that need to be familiar with Old Testament and its background? If one doesn't know the Old Testament, one really doesn't have a chance of understanding the New because again and again, and you see this in the Gospels, the way they tell the story is not just with the odd glance over their shoulder, mm. that something interesting happened back there and this is an odd reference. You know, like I might drop a reference to a Shakespeare play into a speech or a book I was writing or something, and that's just for decoration. Some people think that the Old Testament is just there for sort of back decoration. It's much, much more than that. The Old Testament whether we read it as we do in the English translations from Genesis to Malachi, or as you do in the Hebrew from Genesis to Chronicles, they order the books differently. Whichever way you do it, it's telling a story, and the story is going somewhere, and it stops short. The end of Chronicles, the end of Malachi, it's pointing ahead. It's as though we've got, um, say it's a 12-chapter novel, and we've got like nine or ten of those chapters, or maybe nine and a half, or as I've sometimes said, take a Shakespeare play. It's as though we've got three acts of the play and we're waiting to see what's going to happen in the fourth mm. act when it all really works out. And the way that the Gospels are written, very cleverly, quite different, all four, but each one in its own way, is taking that Old Testament narrative and saying, the story that I'm telling you, the story about Jesus, is where that story was going. Mm. I know it doesn't look like what you were expecting, but this is where it all had to go. And of course, one of the things that that tells us is that it is very, in our modern terms, this worldly, because the Jewish story is about God promising Abraham a family and a land, and then all the bad things that happen when they get it wrong and mess it up and, and all the rest of it. Now, what happens in the New Testament is that the family gets expanded so that it now includes people of all sorts and shapes and sizes and ethnic backgrounds, not just the Jewish people, and the land gets expanded, as you see in the Acts of the Apostles, so it's now the whole world. And, and that whole sense of a narrative which suddenly does this new thing is enormously powerful in the Gospels. And again, I suspect that 90% of Christians in today's world have never even thought that, let alone tried to read the text in that way. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is fulfilling uh, the expectations and hopes of Israel in many different ways, and sometimes it seems perhaps we've too narrowly construed what the, the kind of fulfillment that Jesus is bringing about. It has this kingdom dimensions and uh, 
time and space and on Earth dimensions. Yeah, it, it really does. And uh, if you think of all the scriptures that the people of uh, Israel in Jesus' day would know, what would they know most? Quite possibly the Psalms. And when you go to the Psalms, and think, for instance, of the Psalms in the 90s, the Lord is king and has put on his glorious apparel and he's taking his power and reigning. And the Lord is king, let the earth be glad thereof. And, and you get those wonderful Psalms like 96 and 98, which say that the mountains and the hills and the sheep in the field are all going to sing for joy because Yahweh is coming to be king. And then perhaps most decisive of all, in Isaiah 52, how lovely on the mountains are the one who says to Zion, your God reigns. That is, your God is becoming king. And how does that come about? We go straight from the end of Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53, which is this extraordinary picture of the suffering servant, who is the obedient representative of Israel, taking the weight of sin and sorrow upon himself. Um, so that then in Isaiah 54, there is new covenant, and Isaiah 55, there is new creation. It's the most extraordinary sequence. And I think that Jesus and the gospel writers have that whole prophetic sequence in mind. The kingdom of God, through the work of the servant, resulting in the total renewal of covenant and creation. Mm -hmm. And how would their uh, understanding of uh, Jesus as uh, son of David or Messiah, um, how would that fill out and, and inform how we, what we hear Jesus saying in, uh, in the New Testament? The, the word Messiah or Christ, which is just the Greek translation of Messiah, is so often misunderstood, not least by Christians who kind of short-circuit the argument over the last two or three hundred years particularly, the question that Western culture has asked itself is, is Jesus divine? And people have taken the word Christ and assumed that that meant divine. And then it comes as a shock to people when they're told, well, actually, it means Messiah. And as far as we know, first century Jews didn't particularly imagine, in fact, most of them certainly didn't imagine, that the Messiah would be in any sense divine. What we see in the New Testament is a swirling mass of different Jewish ideas. There was no one identikit picture of what a Messiah would look like. Jesus takes the variegated expectations of the time and remolds them around himself. We can see other figures actually doing the same thing in the same period. Um, and what Jesus does is he draws those messianic expectations, which are very fuzzy and ill-formed, onto himself. And through his own work, he does this stuff in a new way so that he uh, doesn't appear like the warrior messiah that some were imagining. Um, he doesn't appear to be wanting to rebuild the temple as some people thought a messiah ought to do, which is why the Herod family were trying to legitimate themselves as king of the Jews by doing the stuff with the temple. Jesus, on the contrary, um, seems to be attacking the temple and warning that this temple is, is, is under threat of imminent destruction and so on. But his followers see that he is obedient to a deeper messianic vision rooted in Israel's scriptures and which is producing this extraordinary different sort of messianic victory. Instead of um, beating the pagans in a straight old-fashioned military battle, he is beating the darkest, darkest enemy of all, which is death, which is caused by human rebellion and sin. And so Jesus is redefining the messianic agenda around a deeper version, if you like, of his understanding of, of, of what the, the real problem is, which has to be dealt mm -hmm. with by the king when he comes. So many Jews of the time looked at Jesus in his lifetime and when Paul was preaching about him and said, 
That's not the sort of Messiah we were expecting, thank you very much. Um, but the early Christians said, nevertheless, the resurrection of Jesus is the declaration by the living God that he really is the Messiah, and hence this really is the redemption that you were in fact expecting, even if it doesn't look like you thought it would at the time. It seems to me that another important element needed uh, to follow the Gospel writer's story regards uh, the nature of this kingdom and Jesus, I guess, redefinition of it, really. And so Jesus' kingship and uh, seems to me to relate to the idea of righteousness, you know, the righteous kingdom. And, of course, God's righteousness is a theme in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. How would you define biblical righteousness? Because I think we can think of that in purely spiritual or moralistic mm -hmm. ways. Um, and how does that notion of righteousness relate to the Jesus being king in the kingdom mm -hmm. of God? Part of our difficulty with the word righteousness and its cognates righteous and then justify, etc., which is the same root in the Greek mm -hmm. or the Hebrew, um, is that we don't have one English word or set of words which map directly onto the Hebrew words or the Greek words that we find in the Old or the New Testament. This is a common problem with many words, but this is one of the big ones. And as I've sometimes put it, um, the Hebrew word tzedaka, which is the word we normally translate as righteousness, is like uh, a large ocean-going uh, freight vessel which carries a lot of freight from different bits of Israel's uh, scriptures and Israel's history, we don't in contemporary English have any, any mm -hmm. vessel big enough to carry all that freight. So when we say righteousness, it, we have to educate ourselves to think back into what that word would carry. Then of course it's complicated because the Jews of Jesus' day, many of them would read the Septuagint, the Greek translation, but the, the word dikazune carries some of the content that Sadaka would, but for a Greek speaker, it would also carry quite a lot of Plato, mm. um, who'd written about Dikazuna as justice. Um, and so it, it is hugely complicated in the New Testament, and the word moves this way and that from writer to writer. The center of it is something to do with God's righteousness, something to do with God's faithfulness to his people, to the relationship he's established with his people, which we call the covenant relationship. But because God's intention for his people is that they would be the genuine humans, the real deal, then it has inescapably what we call an ethical content as well. They wouldn't have dissociated covenant from ethics. Those two go together. God says, if you are my people, then this is what it's going to look like if you are my people. So we separate these things out and say, is this a status? Is it behavior? Is it spirituality? And the answer is it's all of those but more. And when you learn to think in the way that the Psalms do, talking about um, Yahweh's righteousness or Isaiah particularly, again, Isaiah 40 to 55, the whole passage, that whole passage is full of talk about the fact that Yahweh is righteous so that you may be in exile now, but you can trust him because he is righteous. He will restore you. He will rescue you. He will bring you back. But then you have to be a people who not only embody, but reflect that righteous quality. And the New Testament is drawing cheerfully on all of that mm. um, as part of this overall picture that if God is really becoming king, then that is both a revelation of his faithfulness to creation and covenant and a summons to all those whom he is calling 
um, to live as part of that, to be God's righteous people, both as the status which they're given by God's grace, and then, as Paul says in Romans 6, in the way they actually behave. And as I say, part of our problem in the last two or three centuries in the Western world is that we have separated status and behavior in a way that they wouldn't have done, uh, so that we want to emphasize the one or the other, but it's very difficult mm -hmm. to do both at the same time. The New Testament doesn't seem to suffer from our inhibitions at that point. Another uh, issue that I've uh, <clears throat> become aware of is that uh, I think sometimes the notion of righteousness is related to the notion of justice in mm -hmm. our Western parlance anyway. It seems to me that righteousness is often understood as just rewarding the good and punishing the evil. <clears throat> and that's, that would be it. God's righteousness would be fulfilled if that's all God accomplished. He rewarded the good and punished the evil. Um, it seems to me you're talking about something more than that. Yeah, wh when I think about the way the Bible treats the righteousness of God, I think of a passage like Daniel 9, the great prayer of Daniel in exile, where he says, okay, we've been here a long time and we know why this happened. It's because you are righteous. Uh, how does that work? Well, it's because we were in covenant, we broke the covenant, so because you are righteous, you were obliged to punish us. Go back to Deuteronomy 27, 28, God was obliged to punish his rebellious people by sending him into exile. And then Daniel says, however, because you are righteous, however, because you are righteous, now is the time for you to rescue us and bring us back. Mm. In other words, the covenant was not simply a quid pro quo. You behave like this, this happens, you behave like that, that happens. The covenant was God setting up the family of Abraham as the family through whom he was going to rescue the whole world. That's how Paul expounds the Abraham story in Romans 3 or Galatians 4, for instance. Uh, sorry, Romans 4 or Galatians 3. Um, th the result of that is that God knew from the beginning when he chose Abraham that this family was going to mess up. These people were themselves part of the problem as well as part of the solution. Mm. So the story gets very complicated, morally, theologically, but when it all comes into land in the New Testament, we find that that notion of God being like a just judge who punishes the evil and rewards the good is not totally removed, but we go beyond that into the uh, extraordinary idea that God's righteousness is about his grace and his mercy and his overflowing faithfulness to a purpose which is to say, okay, the whole world is messed up, but I love you so much that I'm going to take that onto myself and deal with it so that there can be new creation, forgiveness, and new life for anyone who is hearing this message and is able to respond. So that <clears throat> the idea of new creation and restoration then is intrinsically related to righteousness. In other words, yes, if absolutely. God hmm. merely stopped short of that and didn't provide us a renewal, then that would be a, a different notion. But because he's righteous, he renews, he restores, yeah. uh, recreates. And, and one of the fascinating things which the New Testament holds together, which we often manage not to, is, is the dealing with evil on the cross, making the way, therefore, for new life to happen, because it's evil which is stopping the new life happening, as we all know in ourselves, that when we mess up, when we sin, when we rebel, there's stuff which ought to be flourishing in our lives which then doesn't. But that happens kind of cosmically, and God takes the weight of that evil upon himself in the person of Jesus, and that's what the cross is obviously all about. 
But then if, if it just sort of stopped there, and, and some Western piety has done that. I mean, think of the great works of Johann Sebastian Bach, the Matthew Passion and the John Passion. You know, you almost have a complete theory of salvation stopping with the cross. Mm. Now, Bach didn't have a very big theology of the resurrection, um, interesting in his Lutheran world. And sometimes we've allowed ourselves to think you can tell the whole story with then just the resurrection as kind of a nice happy ending mm. um, as an afterthought. But the whole point is, now that that's been dealt with, new creation can begin. And that's again where the kingdom of God obviously comes in. Mm -hmm. I think in another one of your books, I'm not sure if it's in this one, you, you talk about God's commitment to uh, uh, putting things to rights. Yes. Um, and this is, this is, I think it's a Britishism. We talk about putting things to rights. You know, if my bicycle has been um, messed up because I've had an accident or whatever, I take it to the shop and they'll put it to rights. They'll fix it. Or if my radio is on the blink, then, then somebody will fiddle inside. He'll, we say he'll put it to rights. I think in America you often just say he'll put it right or make it right. Um, I like the phrase put it to rights because that has a little bit of an echo of rights as in the sense of justice. And the way I've often put it, this relates to the doctrine of justification in Paul, of course, is that God's eventual aim is to put the whole world to rights, is to sort mm -hmm. the whole world out. That's there in the Psalms, Isaiah, Genesis, Deuteronomy, etc. Now, part of the means whereby God does that in and through Jesus Christ is to put people right. And so justification is there to serve the larger cause of justice. It's not just about me needing to be right with God. Of course, I do, and that's important, and that's central. Mm. When I look at myself in the mirror, I need to know that that's there. But God doesn't stop there. He says, I'm putting you right so that you can be part of the team which is working on the putting the world right stuff, because that's what, by the Holy Spirit, God is, is intending to be doing in and through us. Yes, very good. I appreciate that. Uh, perhaps one more question here. I, I, uh, <clears throat> it's clear that uh, in your book that you think an, an emphasis on going to heaven uh, doesn't do complete justice to the message of the gospel of the New Testament. Uh, what's the problem with setting out the gospel just in that way, going to heaven? And is there a way to correct for that? This is, this is a big and deep one. And uh, I guess I struggled with this when I was in my late teens and early 20s because I'd grown up going to church where the whole emphasis the whole time was the assumption was if you're a Christian you get to heaven and if you're not then watch out because you, you probably won't. And much of Western Christianity has just been stuck on that. This is a medieval thing by the way. Um, I, I Anecdote but it may help. I was once in a worship service in the Sistine Chapel in Rome with that great picture by Michelangelo at the far end. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting next to a Greek Orthodox Archimandrite. It was an ecumenical row we were on. And he pointed at that painting and he said, that's just not how we do it in the Greek East. We don't tell the story like that with some going to heaven and some going to hell because for them it's all about resurrection and new creation. And he didn't say they're not necessarily universalists, um, but the whole emphasis is not on some this way, some that way, but it's on the newness and the new creation and the life rather than the either or. Now, um, what we then find, which is a problem if you grow, grow up with going to heaven as the ideal, is people envisage heaven as outside space mm. and time and matter. Mm. But, excuse me, we have Jesus being raised from the dead and we are promised 
that we will be raised bodily from the dead. And most devout Christians, I think, believe that without ever actually stopping and thinking, how does that picture work together? Mm. And the answer is, of course, as any first century Jew would know, that resurrection means a two-stage post-mortem reality, that you don't go straight from death to resurrection. So Jesus himself didn't go straight from death to resurrection. Jesus was in the tomb and then was raised on the third day. He talks to the brigand beside him on the cross and he says, today you will be with me in paradise, because in that world, Paradise is not the ultimate place you go to be. Paradise is the temporary resting place. You know, when, uh, just under two years ago, my father died, and I had the privilege of taking his funeral, and it was a wonderful sense, he was a, a devout Christian man, of, of giving him over to God to be rested and refreshed and restored, a kind of a big sigh of relief, against the day when one day he will be raised from the dead, when we all will be, when God makes the new heavens and new earth. So when we talk about going to heaven, fine, okay, I just noticed the New Testament doesn't usually do that. There's hardly any passages in the New Testament use that language. In Revelation, it talks about the souls being under the altar and saying to God, how long? You know, that they're, they're in a holding pattern, in a waiting mode. And the eventual thing is the new heavens and new earth which will be like this world only more so. It, you know, God made space, time, and matter, and he loves that stuff. He said in Genesis it was very good, and he wants to do it even more. So the new world which God will make will be like the present one only more so. And where the dead are now, if they belong to Christ, Paul says they are with Christ, which is far better. But that isn't the end of the story. There is resurrection still to come. Getting that two-stage story into people's heads when they've had a whole lifetime of thinking of simply a one step straight into heaven and that's it, that's very difficult. Fortunately, if you read the New Testament, it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.